If you were with us last week, Easter, a great time to celebrate uh, the victory of Christ and his resurrection. And we don't want to forget the new life that we've been given uh, through him and, and, and the victory that we've, we've been given and live in light of that victory. And yet we also acknowledge that we haven't experienced the fullness of that victory yet, that, that you and I still live in a broken world and we're broken people in it, uh, not yet made perfect. We have weaknesses. We still have failures. And despite this promised victory of Christ that's yet to come. So this morning, uh, we want to talk about that because the disciples of Christ, like Peter specifically, had to deal with their failures after the resurrection, just as you and I do. So I want to begin this morning with a poem that's called, And God Said If, and I think it will help set the scene. The poem is written imagining God as the author. It says, If you never felt pain, then how would you know that I'm a healer? If you never went through difficulty, how would you know that I'm a deliverer? If you never had a trial, how could you call yourself an overcomer? If you never felt sadness, how would you know that I'm a comforter? If you never made a mistake, how would you know that I'm forgiving? If you never were in trouble, how would you know that I will come to your rescue? If you never were broken, then how would you know that I can make you whole? And if you never had a problem, how would you know that I can solve them? If you never had any suffering, then how would you know what I went through? If you never went through the fire, then how would you become pure? If I gave you all things, how would you appreciate them? If I never corrected you, how would you know that I love you? If you had all power, then how would you learn to depend on me? If your life was perfect, then what would you need me for? We should think about that one for a minute. If your life was perfect, what would you need me for? As we think about Peter this morning, there are really two parts to his story of failure. Of course, his threefold denial uh, of Jesus. And the second part is how God forgave and restored him. And the first part depends wholly on Peter. The second, wholly on Jesus. Peter was in charge of his own failure. Christ took charge of restoring him. And and so behind this story lies a wonderful, hope-filled truth. And that is that failure is an event. It's not a destiny. This is good news because all of us fail sooner or later. And if we're extremely honest this morning, we fail again and again and again, right? But as Peter's story illustrates, it's not our failure or our initial failure that ruins us. It's what happens next that matters most. Judas had failed, and so he gave up. But that was a poor choice. That was a bad choice. Failure does not mean that you have blown everything. It just means that you have some hard lessons to learn. It doesn't mean that you should give up. It means you need the Lord to show you how to go forward. It does not mean that God has abandoned you. It means that God 
has a better plan in his timing. Peter never forgot what happened, and when he denied Christ, uh, I, I believe that went with him wherever he went after that. Tradition says that he would start weeping when he heard a rooster crow after that, and that he would often wake up in the night at the very hour and pray when he had denied the Lord. Peter experienced sadness, shame, anger, and grief. How does Jesus respond to that? This is a story that takes place after Easter, after the resurrection. And this morning we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 19, John chapter 21. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did... They were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, and there was with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the nets or the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, 
what about him? And I'll stop right there. Uh, What we want to focus in on is how Jesus responds to our failures or our brokenness. And specifically the question of, what does Jesus do to restore his fallen disciple? And I'm assuming this morning that we are his disciples, that we are his followers. And like Peter, we fail. So how does Jesus respond to his fallen disciple? Well, the answer comes in four stages. And first of all, we see that he sends for him. He sends for him. As we talked about last week, uh, the women arrived at the tomb early in the morning and an angel announced the good news and he instructed them to, to go and tell his disciples and Peter. What does that mean? His disciples and Peter. You see, Peter's denial had separated him. It had set him apart from the rest of the disciples. And, and no doubt he wondered to himself after that many times, what am I now? Am I a traitor or am I a disciple? Well, Peter may have failed in the upper room, but Jesus sends for him. In the upper room, just a few hours earlier, Peter had said, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And then later, he bragged about his courage. He bragged that if everyone else deserted Jesus, he would never desert him. How wrong he was. Under pressure, he melted like butter. So he may have failed in the upper room. He may have failed with his sword. But Jesus sends for him. Peter meant well when he drew out his sword. But his futile attempt to protect Jesus accomplished nothing. And Jesus said, put your sword away. It must be this way. Peter may have failed in the courtyard. But Jesus sends for him. In the courtyard. Are you one of these men who are with Jesus? Jesus? I don't know him. Didn't I see you with his disciples? I don't know the man. Aren't you a follower of Jesus of Nazareth? Peter begins to swear as only a fisherman could swear, I imagine. And he says, I tell you, I don't know that man. And in the distance, a rooster crows. Moments later, Jesus is brought out from his trial before the high priest Caiaphas. And Luke 22, 61 says that the Lord turned and he looked straight at Peter. And I believe that's when the full impact of his sin hit him. And realizing what he had done, Peter wept outside, he went outside and he wept bitterly. After all of that, notice that Christ sends for him. He doesn't write Peter off. He doesn't put him in the loser category. Jesus still has plans for Peter. Plans to give him a hope and a future. Plans to give him another chance. And Jesus wants to renew and restore this disciple who had failed continuously. I hope you're getting the hope here. The great hope for you and I as people who fail continuously. He sends for him. And then secondly, he meets with him. Where does Peter go after he denies Christ? We don't really know for sure because the Bible doesn't 
spell that out. But we can guess that Peter uh, probably, after he made this huge mistake, did not want to be around people. Having let other people down and let let his Lord down, um, he didn't want to be around people. And I think you and I are the same way. If we fail, if we make a mistake, we don't really want to be around others. We really don't want to be reminded of that. And, and that's exactly what the enemy wants. He wants to isolate us. That having made a stupid mistake or a failure, that we don't really want to be around our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we often lock ourselves into a prison of self-imposed solitary confinement. Because our sin has separated us from God and then also separated us from the body of Christ and God's people. And I, and I, I would guess that's what happens to Peter that weekend. Uh, the last thing we're told is that after Jesus looked at him, Peter wept bitterly. And I'm guessing that after that, he found a lonely spot to replay those awful moments in his mind. And he probably beat himself up over and over again. And you can almost hear the questions. Why? Why did I do that? What made me think I was better than the others? How could I have been so stupid? What does Jesus think of me now? Well, we find an answer to that last question, the fact that Jesus makes a special appearance to Peter immediately after his resurrection. We don't know where or when precisely, nor do we know how long the meeting lasted, but twice the New Testament mentions that this meeting took place. Luke twenty four thirty four says, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And 1 Corinthians fifteen four says, He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. I think it's encouraging that Jesus met with Peter before he met with the rest of the disciples. I hope that you're encouraged by that. That Jesus not only sends for Peter, but he goes to meet him, and he goes to meet him apart from the others. It's amazing grace. Our Lord has amazing grace. There's not going to be a public humiliation. Since Peter denied Christ, their relationship needs to be settled. The two of them need to work this out. So with wisdom and grace, Christ comes after Peter... He doesn't wait for him to make the first move. He sends for him. He meets with him. And then thirdly, he challenges him. Now we join our text in John chapter 21. It's evening on the Sea of Galilee, not not long after the resurrection. And Peter and six other disciples spend the night fishing. And they catch nothing. And in the morning, a man calls to them from the shore, telling them to put their nets on the other side of the boat. And then they will catch fish. And we know that they end up with so many fish, they can't even haul the net in. And uh, when, when Peter realizes this is Jesus, he impulsively jumps in the water and he begins swimming for shore. Uh, turns out Peter and the other disciples caught 153 fish simply by putting their net on the other side of the boat. So with wisdom and grace, Christ comes after Peter. He doesn't wait for him to make the first move. But I think you have to wonder, if Christ was watching the disciples from the shore all night, why didn't he speak up sooner? He could have done this sooner, right? Why did he let them fish all night and not catch anything? Hours of frustration. 
why did he let that happen? The answer is, and this is hard for me to say, but they needed to fail. They needed to fail. Failure in this case was needed in order that they might eventually succeed. Because if that unidentified man had spoken up sooner, they would have doubtless rejected his advice. Put your net on the other side of the boat. Really? (laughs) We're professional fishermen. Who are you? We know where to find fish. But let the night pass and the sun come up. Let them be exhausted. Let them be utterly frustrated. And at last they're ready to listen to the voice of our Lord. And you know what? It's the same way with you and I. It's the same way. The Lord will allow us to fail in our own strength so that we may learn that only by His power, only by His timing, may we succeed. The disciples needed to fail so they could learn to depend on Christ for their victories. And sometimes it will take a shameful failure for us, finally, to wake up and to see our need for Christ. And so the question is, Peter, will you obey me even when it makes no sense? And I think that's the same question that the Lord asks you and I every day. Will we obey him even if we think we have a better way? Will we obey even if the way forward seems unclear or confusing? Will we obey when our instincts tell us to do something different? Will we obey when we have failed on our own? Will we trust the Lord? Well, after the breakfast was over, Peter and Jesus sat by the fire. Just as Peter had sat by a fire when he betrayed him, And I think this is the part of the story that we know best. Kyle Eidelman imagines this scene in his video series called The Easter Adventure. And perhaps it looked something like this. The smell of those coals must have reminded Peter of a fire he had stood by a few days before where he had denied his closest friend. Even as he sat within arm's reach of Jesus, he must have wondered if he'd ever really feel close to him again. I've seen you. No, I don't think so. You? You were with Jesus. I've never met the man. Peter. Do you love me? Of course. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Perhaps like Judas, Peter felt powerless to change, trapped by his mistakes, haunted by his bad choices. No, I'm not. I don't know the man. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs. But perhaps the difference between Peter and Judas is that instead of letting his sorrow drive him to despair, 
Peter allowed his sorrow to drive him to Jesus. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? May God curse me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. Do you love me? As they sat by that fire, three times Jesus asked Peter, Do you love me? Once for each time he had denied him, and three times Peter affirmed his love. You know everything, Lord. You know that I love you. Then take care of my lambs. Peter is wounded by his failure. Jesus is cleaning the wound so that it might be properly healed. He's getting rid of Peter's guilt and his shame by dealing with it openly. And consider here what Christ does not do. He doesn't try to make Peter feel guilty. He doesn't humiliate him publicly. He doesn't ask, are you sorry for what you did? He doesn't make him promise to do better. He just asks one question. Do you love me? Once we hurt someone we love, it's hard to look them in the face, and it's harder still to be questioned about our true commitment. But the questions must be asked, and they must be repeated if the truth is to be found. Peter needed to see the enormity of his sin, and he needed to hear Jesus ask these searching questions. Only then could he grasp the fullness of Christ's forgiveness. Only then could he be truly restored. Without the pain, he would not get better. Uh, Years ago, a friend shared this thought with me. He said, you know, the truth will set you free, but sometimes it will hurt you first. I think that's true. Often we don't get better because we don't want to face the hard truth about what we have said and done. But until we face the truth about ourselves, we can't be free. And so this morning I ask you, do you want to serve the Lord with your life? Do you want to serve the Lord with your life? If so, there are three qualifications. The first is love. The second is is love. And the third is love. First we love and then we serve. First we love and then we speak. First we love and then we lead. When Christ asks the question the third time, Peter's heart is grieved and he blurts out, Lord, you know all things. And I believe that with those words, Peter abandons all of his self-confidence. On that fateful night in the upper room, he thought he knew himself, but he didn't. And now he's not so sure. He doesn't even know if he can trust his own heart. Instead, he trusts in the Lord who knows all things. And I think that's a big step forward for you and I in the Christian life. It's a great advance for you and I to come to this place where we can say with conviction, my trust is in the Lord alone. I put my trust in him. And sometimes we have to hit bottom. And we have to hit it really hard before we can say those words. And this happens in Peter's life. Well, did it work? 
Did the painful surgery produce the desired healing? Yes. Peter never denied Christ again. And we know that just a few days later on the day of Pentecost, fully restored, he stands in the temple courts and he preaches a mighty gospel sermon to the very people who had crucified the Lord. And 3,000 people were saved on that day. The old Peter was gone forever. The new man was born when Jesus restored his disciple. And we study this because this is how Jesus lovingly handles us in our weakness and failure. Jesus sends for him, he meets with him, he challenges him, and he restores him. Early church history says that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome because he said that he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. And I think it's remarkable in verses 18 and 19 that Jesus skips the rest of Peter's life and he concentrates only on how he will die. Although he had failed in the past, in the end he will glorify God in his death. In the upper room, Peter had rashly boasted that he was willing to follow Christ to prison and to death. And it's almost as if Peter, or as if Jesus tells him here, you're right, more than you know. Someday you will have a chance to keep your promise. And I know in that day you will not fail. And history tells us that Peter lived and he died faithful to Jesus to the very end. So we come to the end of the message. What what does Christ do with our failure? He redeems it. He redeems it. As Erwin Lutzer has said, God is able to forget our past Why can't we? He throws our sins into the depths of the seas, puts up a sign on the shore which reads, No fishing. I believe that you and I love Peter because we can see ourselves in his story. In fact, his story is really our story. For all of us in this process of Christian growth, uh, it can be a long and painful process with many ups and downs. And Peter, the rock seemed at times to be very unrock-like. It took repeated failure to produce a rock-solid character in him. But Jesus never give up, gave up on his man. Here's the final irony. From beginning to end, Jesus believed in Peter more than Peter believed in himself. And just like in Peter's life, Jesus will not allow us in our lives to remain alone and stuck in our failure and weakness. When difficulties and failures occur, Jesus does not abandon us. Instead, if we will let him, he will use our greatest weakness and failure to draw us to him, to rely on his grace and his strength and his power and his plan and in his timing and in his purposes. As the opening poem stated, if your life was perfect then what would you need me for? The real hero of Peter's story isn't Peter. The real hero is Jesus. And I believe that's why John 21 is in the Bible, so that all of us Peter types would know that though we fall again and again by God's grace, we can keep getting back up. Because we have a God who does not give up on us when we fail. He doesn't stop pursuing us. He doesn't stop revealing himself to us. He sends for us. He meets with us. He continues to challenge and restore us. 
And if we truly love the Lord and turn to Him, our greatest failures and weaknesses can be used for God's greatness. He did it for Peter. He wants to do it for you.